Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you are about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts, or for the Faith Working radio show podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under Podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, we remember what a privilege it is that you have spoken to us so many times in so many ways and preeminently in Christ. And you've recorded all of it for us in the scriptures that we might have comfort and hope and strength. And so we pray that it would be indeed you that is speaking to us this morning through the Spirit that we would become the children you desire us to be. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we began laying the groundwork for the Olivet Discourse, which is the last and largest um, discourse in the Gospel of Matthew, and which is also the most controversial because much of it is prophecy. And we saw that over the last century, a set of assumptions unknown to the church for the first 18 centuries of her existence has come to dominate how the Olivet Discourse is interpreted. And not only the Olivet Discourse, but also all of New Testament prophecy as well as the book of Daniel. And that set of assumptions is provided by a theological framework known as dispensationalism, which has affected every branch of the evangelical church in America and Great Britain. The cornerstone of uh, dispensationalism, the engine that pulls the entire train, is the assertion that Israel and the church are two separate peoples of God, with two separate callings, two separate histories, and two separate destinies. And based on that radical separation between Israel and the church, several other radical separations follow. The radical separation of the kingdom of God from the church, with the kingdom pertaining only to Israel. The radical separation of spiritual from earthly, with God's earthly promises applying only to Israel. The radical separation of God's redemptive history into distinct and compartmentalized ages, through which God's timeline for Israel and its earthly messianic kingdom gets interrupted by something previously unrevealed in scripture, a 2,000 plus year church age, which will be followed by a resumption of the Jewish kingdom timeline once the church is raptured out of the picture. So you have this radical separation of redemptive history. Well, what about these assumptions with their radical uh, separations? I want to this morning take a look at what scripture says. But before we jump in, I want to say and to emphasize that we are not talking here about being a Christian or not. When I became a Christian at age 17, it was at the very, uh, probably the pinnacle and height of dispensationalism. When I became a Christian, I became a dispensationalist. That is what I was taught. And the Christians who taught it to me were some of the best Christians I have ever known. I will add, though, that almost all of them have come out of dispensationalism, having found it to be an erroneous framework for understanding the scriptures. But as I said, dispensationalism was what I was taught, 
And I assumed that every Christian from the apostles on down believed it. I did not know that it was unknown in church history until 1830. And most dispensationalists are in the same boat. Many of them have never even heard the name dispensationalism. It's just what they have been taught. And still today, I would venture to say that the vast majority of evangelicals are dispensationalists, either wittingly or unwittingly. Now, that being the case, why should we talk about this? Because the evangelical church is facing a crisis. A crisis brought about in large part by a century and a half long retreat of the evangelical church from culture. Which has created a vacuum filled by the killing secularism that we witness today. And that retreat was fueled in large part by the radical separations supplied by dispensationalism. Separations that have helped lead to the ultimate separation of our day. The separation of God's word from the public square. Why? Well, because the church, we have been taught, pertains to the spiritual. And the public square pertains to the earthly. And dispensationalism has taught us all that Jesus is not currently claiming the earthly, which means he has nothing directly to say to the public square. If the evangelical church is to meet the crisis at hand, we must come out of that kind of pinched and compartmentalized view of the Lordship of Christ. We must recover the faith of our forefathers who first settled America, whose Christian heritage evangelicals rightly love to invoke, but whose faith knew nothing of these radical separations dispensationalism has taught to us. Knowing that our forefathers, whom we rightly honor, held a completely different view of these things, we ought to be open to what they believed. We ought to be open to the possibility that they had it right and we have it wrong. We are, after all, I would submit, spiritual dwarves compared to them. For they accomplished so much more with so much less. They were blessed in a way that we aren't because they honored Jesus as Lord in a way that we don't. So I hope that you will be open and prayerful as we search the scriptures together. And I want to look today at what the scriptures say about the cornerstone of dispensationalism, and that is the radical separation between Israel and the church as two distinct peoples of God. Well, there are many passages that we could look at, but I want to focus on three key passages. And the first one is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 16. There Paul says this, Remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one 
and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross. Now, Paul here speaks very plainly and directly. He says that God through Christ has made Jews and Gentiles into one new people of God, that he might reconcile them both in one body through the cross. What Christ has accomplished, notice, is not to create a new people, the Christian church, which God will work with along with his separate other people, Israel. What Christ has accomplished is to create one new man consisting of both Jews and Gentiles so that he might, through the cross, reconcile them both to God in one body. How many bodies? One. One body, one people, one true people of God. Now, does this mean that God is starting all over, that he's starting afresh with a new people based on new promises that have no connection with God's people of old. No. Paul makes it clear the Gentiles are being brought into God's one true people. The Gentiles who were once far off are being brought near, Paul says in verse 13. Well, what does that mean specifically? Well, he tells us it means that the Gentiles were once aliens to the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise. But now, by the cross of Christ, the Gentiles have been brought near and made part of one body with God's people. In other words, Gentile believers in Christ are no longer aliens, but citizens in the commonwealth of Israel. And they are no longer strangers, but heirs to the covenants of promise. Now notice in verse 12 how Paul ties together five things. He ties together five things. One, having Christ. Two, being citizens in the commonwealth of Israel. Three, being heirs to the covenants of promise. Four, having hope. And five, having God in the world. These things go together according to Paul. You either have them all or you have none. And the key to all of them is having Christ. Whether you are Jew or Gentile, if you don't have Christ, you are not part of the commonwealth of Israel. You are not heirs of the covenants of promise. You have no hope, and you're without God in the world. But if you have Christ, you're part of the commonwealth of Israel. You're an heir of the covenants of promise. You have hope, and you have God in this world. And that brings us to our second main text, which is Galatians chapter 3, starting at verse 29, and then going into chapter 4 to verse 6. Paul begins this passage in this way, with one of the most astounding statements in the whole New Testament. This, this verse, this statement, would have been like a rifle shot across Israel in the first century. This is what Paul says. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. Now notice the logic of this. The logic of this is nobody is an heir to God's promises unless 
They are Abraham's seed. Nobody is an heir to God's promises, or let's say it in the evangelical way, nobody is saved unless they are the seed of Abraham. But Paul says, here's how you be a seed of Abraham. You belong to Christ. All those who belong to Christ are the seed of Abraham. Furthermore, only those who belong to Christ are the seed of Abraham. Only they are heirs according to the promise. Now here again, Paul is referring to Israel because who is Abraham's seed all through the Old Testament? That's Israel. So Paul says, if you're Christ, you're Abraham's seed. You're part of his people. Which people? The descendants of Abraham. Next, Paul says, if you're Christ, you're heirs according to the promise. What promise is that? Well, the promise that God gave Abraham when he called him to follow him. Paul tells us, Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, foreseeing what? That God would justify the Gentiles by faith. So is this some mystery that was concealed and never before revealed until all of a sudden this parenthesis of a church age suddenly dropped into play? No. When God promised to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and says, Come out from your people and follow me, he makes to him the promise. He says, In you all the nations shall be blessed. What is God talking about there? Paul tells us. He says, The scripture foreseeing that God would gentify the Gentiles. What's in view? God justifying Gentiles. At that time, that is already in view. He says, God, seeing that, having that in mind, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. What is God talking about when he tells Abraham, In you all the nations shall be blessed? What's he talking about? He's talking about the gospel. He's talking about the gospel which has to do with Gentiles, everybody, all the nations, being blessed through Abraham's seed, who is Christ. Next, in Galatians uh, chapter uh, 4, Paul analogizes God's people, both Old Testament and New, Israel and the church, to a single person, a prince who is an heir to a kingdom. We see that in Galatians 4, 1 through 6. Paul says, now look, I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all. But he is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. By there, he's talking about all the rituals and, and, and the rules and the cleanness rules and so forth of the Mosaic law. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. So Paul says, look, if you're trying to understand the Old Testament and the New Testament, and you're trying to understand how they relate to one another, and what makes them different. The way to picture it is not to picture two separate people, two separate heirs, two different uh, uh, peoples based on different promises and different inheritances. No, the way that you picture the Old Testament versus the New Testament is as one person, one heir, with one promise and one inheritance, but in two stages of development. 
The Old Testament being when the heir was young and immature and had to be governed like all little children with a very structured environment, with lots of do's and don'ts, and with nannies and guardians and tutors to watch over the heir and train him up. That's the Old Testament. And the New Testament is when the heir comes of age and is ready to receive the inheritance and step out from under the regimen of guardians and tutors. What marks the heir's coming of age? Well, the coming of Christ. And more specifically, Christ's pouring out of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. In other words, the beginning of the Christian church. Galatians 4.4, 4, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because you are sons, God sent forth His Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. So the pouring out of the Spirit signifies the adoptions of Son. It signifies coming of age, receiving the inheritance. But it also signifies, according to Hebrews 8, uh, verse 10, and Jeremiah 31, 33, it signifies the law of God going from outside to inside. It signifies the law of God going from tablets of stone onto the tablets of the hearts of God's people. And really, that's what coming of age is all about, isn't it? Isn't that what we want to see in our children? All the do's and don'ts and the principles and the things that we're teaching them when they're little, that as they grow older, all of a sudden, all of that that's outside goes inside. And when it all goes inside, you don't need all of those outside regimens and all of those little rules and, and so forth uh, to keep teaching that because it's inside. It, it's there. It starts being lived out. That's what coming of age is supposed to to look like. So Paul says Israel and the church are like a single person who was young and immature and had to be taught and trained accordingly, but who then came of age. That's the way you understand Israel and the church, not as two different people, but as one person in two stages of life. And that brings us to our third main passage, Romans chapter 11, verses 13 through 24. Now, in this passage, Paul analogizes God's people, Old Testament and New, to a single olive tree, which was a common uh, symbol or metaphor for Israel in the Old Testament, God's olive tree. He said, but God's people, Old Testament and New, are a single olive tree in which the branches are either cut out or grafted in based on faith in Christ. Okay, that determines what branches are in the tree, faith in Christ. Now, I'm not going to read the entire passage here. It's lengthy. I'm just going to read the most pertinent verses. So we start with Romans 11 at verse 13. Paul says, I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. So he's talking to Gentiles here, explaining to them what's going on. And he's saying, I am the designated apostle to the Gentiles. In verse 16, he says this. If the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. If the root is holy, and this is where he starts talking about the olive tree, if the root is holy, so are the branches. Of course, by implication here, Christ is the root. And then in verse 17, he says this, Some of the branches were broken off, and you, you Gentiles, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, 
and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree. And then in verse 20 he says, the branches that have been cut out of the olive tree, Jewish branches, he says, because of unbelief they were broken off, and you stand by faith. And then in verse 23, he says this, They also, in other words, these branches, the Jewish branches that have been cut out of this olive tree because of unbelief, he says if they do not continue in unbelief, they will be grafted back in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? So God, I mean, Paul analogizes Israel to a cultivated olive tree with individual Jews being the individual branches. And he analogizes Gentiles to a wild olive tree with individual Gentiles being individual branches he says that in Christ, Gentile branches have been cut out of their wild olive tree. They've been grafted into God's cultivated olive tree. Which olive tree is that? Israel. Unbelieving Jews, on the other hand, have been cut out of God's olive tree. They've been cut out of Israel because of their unbelief. And so what Paul is saying here is that God's olive tree is always about faith. Well, what faith is that? Well, it's the faith of Abraham. That's what he tells us in Romans 4. Nobody is saved apart from having the faith of Abraham. What is the faith of Abraham? It's faith in the gospel that God preached to Abraham in Genesis 12. Paul tells us that again in Galatians 3.8. It was faith in Christ. And nobody is a seed of Abraham, and nobody is saved apart from having the faith of Abraham which was a faith in Christ, a faith in the gospel. And so Peter, on the day of Pentecost, in the very first Christian sermon, looks out of this sea of Jews, those who are in God's cultivated olive tree. And he warns them, and he says this, Acts 3, verse 22, Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, he's speaking about Jesus, you shall hear him in whatever he says to you, and it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. All right, what happened to the descendants of Abraham? I'm talking about the blood descendants of Abraham who opposed Moses. What happened to the blood descendants of Abraham who did not believe God's word spoken through Moses and who did not have faith in what was God was doing through Moses, who was a type of Christ? What happened to those blood descendants of Abraham? They were cut out. That's the way it was in every single generation. What happened to those who did not believe in what God was doing through Isaac or what God was doing through Joseph? and who didn't believe that word, or didn't believe in what God was doing through David, and the word spoken through David. What happened to all those blood descendants of Abraham? They were cut out. 
Why? Because they're rejecting the gospel. They're rejecting the truth of God through the types of God that he provided to every generation to communicate the gospel. Coming back now to Romans 11, Paul goes on to say that unbelieving Jews who are cut out can be grafted back in if they repent and believe in Jesus. So bottom line, how many olive trees does God have? One. He has one olive tree. He doesn't have two, Israel and the church. He has one. It's his one true people through all history. That one olive tree was called Israel in the Old Testament, and it is called the Christian church in the New Testament. That fulfills what God said in Isaiah 65, 15. God will call his servants by another name, and that name is Christian. Whoever disbelieves, Jew or Gentile, is not part of God's one true people. Whoever believes in Christ, Jew or Gentile, is part of God's one true people. Now, that, remain, that raises one uh, interesting question, and that is this. We've seen in all three of these passages, Paul keeps hammering the same thing, same message. One people, one history, one destiny, and is all connected to Christ, Old Testament and New but now that we're in the New Testament, what about the physical nation of Israel? What about the physical Jews? Have they no special significance anymore? Well, that's an interesting question. And it gets into the most complicated part of Romans chapter 11. Now, Paul makes it clear, as we've already seen, there's only one olive tree of God. There's only one people of God consisting of all those Jews and Gentiles who believe in Jesus. So that's a corner stake. We know that. That's clear. Paul's been clear, and he keeps hammering it. He hammers it in Ephesians. He hammers it in Galatians. He hammers it here in Romans 11, and it ha he hammers it in other places. But then he also says this. Going back to verse 13 of Romans 11, I speak to you Gentiles, I'm the apostle to the Gentiles. But he says, one of the reasons I speak to you, verse 14, is if by any means I may provoke to jealousy, jealousy those who are of my flesh and save some of them. So here he's talking about physical Jews. He's talking about physical Jews who are not spiritual Jews. They're physical Jews, but they're not believing in Christ he says, those who are of my flesh. It's clear who he's talking about. He says, one of the things I'm wanting to do, and this is one of the purposes that God announces in the Old Testament too, is to provoke them to jealousy. He wants them to see the blessings of God coming upon Gentiles who have never in their lives sought God. Coming to Gentiles who for generations... And hundreds of years have been walking in total darkness. He wants to see all the blessings of the Abrahamic promises and all the Davidic promises, all of those blessings coming upon these coolest Gentiles. And he wants that to provoke them to jealousy, to wake them up, to see that they're acting like the older brother in the prodigal son parable, standing outside the feast, and they won't go in. 
Because little brother is allowed to come home and go in. And so they're going to stand outside and suck and pout and try to stop the party. Paul wants them to wake up and come inside. He wants them to come in to the feast. Now, he also says this in Romans 11, verse 15. If their being cast away is the, reconciliation, is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? That's an interesting phrase. And what he seems to be saying this is that, look, in the, in the, in the, in the mysterious and wonderful providence of God, God did not just establish a bloodline for the Messiah through Israel. And he did not simply save to himself some in every generation. For in every generation you have, you have those who have the piety of David. In every generation you have those like John the Baptist's parents, Elizabeth and Zacharias. You have Joseph and Mary's in every generation, sincere believers. But Israel as a whole in her history who's going to reject the Messiah, also plays this dark role of displaying to mankind for all history the true nature of our problem, the true death grip that sin has upon us, that God's own people to whom He has given everything, when He appears in the flesh, would say, kill Him. God is saying to every generation and to every people, that's your problem. So don't think that any kind of environmental change or any kind of educational change or any kind of a chemical change or any of those changes are ever going to make a difference to you because your problem is coming from inside you. It is sin and it is death that holds you in this grip. And it is an iron grip. And you're powerless to change yourself. You're powerless. And God shows that through Israel. If that's true of Israel, it's true of everybody, isn't it? And that's one of God's purposes for Israel. And so Paul is saying here, look, if Israel as a whole being cast away because she's turned on the Messiah, she's killed the Messiah, you know, doing what all of us would have done. If, if Israel as a whole being cast away is the reconciliation of the world. If God works in that kind of way, then what will Israel's acceptance be? And here he's talking about physical Israel. What will their acceptance be? In other words, what will their turning be? What will their coming to faith be but life from the dead? He said it'll be, it'll be like the resurrection by implication for the world. And then later on in Romans 11, after talking about Gentile branches being grafted in by faith, Jewish branches cut out for unbelief, and the possibility that Jewish branches can be grafted back in if they repent and believe, Paul says this, verse 26, All Israel will be saved. As it is written, The Deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. The question is, what is Paul talking about when he says all Israel? All Israel will be saved. Is he simply referring to the spiritual remnant, those who believe? That is the spiritual Israel, and therefore that is the all Israel who will be saved? Well, we know that much is true. 
because everybody who believes in Christ is saved and they're part of God's olive tree. The question is, does Paul mean more than that? Does he mean more than that? Does he mean that at some point, God, in addition to the remnant of Jews who believe at any given time, is going to bring about a massive revival and a massive conversion among the physical Jews so that, essentially, the entire physical nation is converted to Christ and grafted back into God's one true people. He only has one olive tree. We know that part. But is he going to do that? Is that what Paul's saying? And is he further saying that when God brings that about, God is going to use that to touch off a massive wildfire of revival and conversion among the nations of the world? Well, what I'm describing to you here was precisely the view of the Puritans of the 1600s and 1700s. They believed that there was one olive tree, not two, one. They believed that Jesus was going to see to it that the Great Commission was fulfilled. Not by having a smattering of believers here and there around the world, but by having all nations converted and made his disciples. Nations, as nations. And they believe that as part of that process, God intended at some point to convert physical Israel in a massive revival and grant of repentance. And that that massive conversion of the, of, of the physical Jews, God would use as a seminal part of converting the world, worldwide kind of revival. That was the faith that touched off the great missionary movement of the 17th and 18th centuries, the greatest explosion of missions in history came in the 17th and 18th centuries. Why? Because of that faith. Because of that faith. That was the faith that led to the settlement of America. That was the faith of Jonathan Edwards and all of those greats. That was the faith of George Whitfield. And that was the faith that led to the Christian heritage for the United States that we love to point back to. Now, let me point this out. This is very different than the kind of preoccupation we see with modern evangelicals toward the nation of Israel. Very different from that. Because much of that is fueled by the dispensational belief that the Jews must rebuild the temple and reinitiate temple sacrifices so that the rapture can come. And Israel, as a separate people of God from the church, can resume her kingdom timeline. That has nothing to do with this faith of the Puritans that I'm describing. The Puritans believed the kingdom of God was initiated by Jesus at his first advent. All right? They believed that Jesus promised the discipleship of the nations in the Great Commission. They believed that the Great Commission was more than a command. It was a command with a promise. We know the promise is there. I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. They believed that was a promise. I mean, if Jesus is with you, can you fail? They believed no. 
And so they believed that Jesus promised the discipleship of the nations and, the, and that the conversion of the physical Jews at some point was not only part of that Great Commission conversion, but would also be used by God as a seminal contributor to the conversion of other nations. Not with physical Israel as some kind of a separate people of God, but through faith in Christ, physical Israel being grafted back in to the olive tree, the one true historic people of God. That was the Puritan faith, and I think they got it right. And I think that is a faith that American Christians desperately need to recover. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.